Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Charles Birnbaum, partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, one of the world's oldest and most successful venture capital firms. Charles joins the podcast fresh off of Bessemer's $3.3 billion raise in February across two of their funds, which Charles will help deploy into fintech. Charles is a proud Wharton alum, joining the MBA program after a long stint on Wall Street. He then became employee number 10 at Foursquare before eventually joining Bessemer. In today's episode, Charles and I discuss his transition from sell side to MBA to startups to venture capital and doing tech way before it was a normal part of the Wharton path. His investments in Alloy and his thoughts on fintech infrastructure as a whole his missed investment in Plaid's Series A, and why he thinks it made him a better investor despite all of the pain that came with it, his thoughts on the future of the wealth management fintech space and its saturation, how he thinks about hiring and how crucial it is for his portfolio companies, and a rapid-fire round including his fintech hero and Wharton classmates in fintech he most admires. Let's get started. Hi, Charles, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. It's great to have you on the show today and always great to have an alum, not only of the Wharton MBA program, but also of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. This is marking your second appearance on the show. Yes, it is uh, my second appearance and and always funny to reflect on the fact that there was no FinTech club at the time uh, and that I focus on FinTech all day, every day. So it's, uh, it's awesome that the club exists and always great reading your stuff and listening to the podcast. I'm glad that you're a supporter. And yes, it has been a crazy journey. The club starting in about 2014, 2015. I won't age you, but Charles was before that time at Wharton. So getting to that, I would love to just walk through your background. So you spent some time at Northwestern University and then did the kind of Wall Street promotion grind cycle in New York, eventually becoming a VP at Bank of America before coming to Wharton. Can you just talk about quickly your background to Wall Street and then the decision to get to Wharton? Yeah, well, I graduated from Northwestern at a time where it was pretty tough to get a job on Wall Street, kind of still uh, had gotten its teeth kicked in the last bubble uh, when that one burst. There there were some some limited jobs on the investment banking groups and capital markets desks. And I got a job at Deutsche Bank and really just wanted to learn the business world as fast as I can and was willing to work hard. and typical investment banking consulting question uh, back then. I think there's many more options these days, which is phenomenal. I don't necessarily recommend it to everyone. Uh, and, and the finance world has changed a lot. But So then I spent about five and a half years in a few different roles, always working with the same mentors. So that's what made me stay more than the typical two years. So I ended up doing it a little bit longer, but always working with technology companies. And I like the companies a lot more than I like the job. So when I went to Wharton, I did the Lauder program. So that made it a little bit richer and more interesting from my perspective. I had studied German undergrad, so I was able to do the, the German track of Lauder. And, you know, I just came to school saying, I want to get to that operating side and, and just get a job at a startup instead of starting my own business. You know, I really just wanted to roll up my sleeves a little bit. At the time, that was really kind of a rare thing to want to do. I was in school from 09 to 11. And it's funny because the Warby guys and Allbirds and a lot of these great entrepreneurs that came out of Wharton were just a year ahead of me. Dave Vassin, who's the CEO of Brightwheel, and I'm on his board. You know, he was a year ahead of me. So there was some great entrepreneurship that came out of 
my vintage. But at the time, it was a really not a thing that people were looking to do, especially for the summer in between. I'd say there was like a handful of us looking to do that. I have some, one friend who worked at Twitter that summer and a couple other examples. But most people really weren't thinking about it. It changed really quickly in the, in the last, in the few years after. But that was a little bit of my journey to Wharton. So for context now, looking around my class, I would say the bulk of students, including sponsored, still go back to consulting. Out of the 850 of us, I'd say it's like three, 400. Then yeah. big tech and you know maybe growth stage tech companies are far and away number two, probably at the two to 300 range. Banking yeah. is down to like 60 students a year and investing and a couple other things probably round out the class. So definitely a lot has changed in yeah, the last amazing. decade. Yeah. There's a lot of de-risking that's happened with technology forward companies. And it was just kind of Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon at the time that were recruiting on campus and doing stuff like that. Now, a lot of my companies have great MBAs littered, littered throughout different divisions. And I think a lot of people have dropped the stigma about which titles they'll be willing to do. So I, I ended up that summer getting an internship at Foursquare, the mobile social network that still exists and uh, is still actually a pretty healthy business. But at the time, there were 10 people at the company and I, I kind of weaseled my way into an internship. I'm doing everything from taking out the trash to helping with some business development needs that were pretty interesting at the time. And then the application really took off in the subsequent months. So I was very fortunate with the timing and the company went from 10 to 200 people while I was there. I worked throughout my second year and then worked there for two years after school before I was recruited to Bessemer. So, you know, kind of, uh, and then by the time I think uh, a year out, it was it, that shift had happened where I think, you know, probably 100 or 200 Wharton students were working at tech companies. I was probably having five or six coffee chats a week with folks interested in what we were doing at Foursquare. And it was great Absolutely. to see. It was like this, this tidal wave of activity. I was just ahead of it by like a year, not by much. That's the mark of a great VC being just ahead of the trend. Yeah, so right. on that note. Just be, better be lucky than good. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So on that note, you worked at Foursquare for two years during this hyper growth stage. I mean, employee number 10, it's a monstrous company now. But then you did make the jump to investing at Bessemer. So where kind of were you at your journey at Foursquare? How did Bessemer get in touch with you? And what was the thought process on making the jump to VC? Yeah, it's funny because when I go back to my time as a technology investment banker living in California and going up and down Sand Hill Road pitching VCs, and I used to just look at the job and say, wow, what a cool way to spend your time. Like, how do I, but I couldn't even think about how I would get there. You know, I mean, a lot of them were former entrepreneurs or just had a moment uh, coming out of Stanford Business School or whatever, where they happened to get a job as an associate. And I kind of put it in the back of my head, but it wasn't really my active thought. And then I was recruited a little bit tangentially while I was at Foursquare because, um, as I mentioned, there weren't that many people who had done the traditional finance thing and had worked at a startup that had gone through some growth in New York at the time, which is where I was. Investors, a very large firm, you know, more investors in Silicon Valley than, than anywhere, but we had a big New York presence, probably the biggest of any firm at the time. It's changed since then. It was not, I was not looking to leave Foursquare, but it was just too good to pass up because our model here is mentorship. We grow from within. It's really rare anyone gets promoted to partner at Bessemer who didn't start at analyst or associate level and kind of build the credibility over time. And that just was really attractive to me. I didn't think I'd become a partner, but it was just the track record of the people I was about to learn from was what made me make the leap. It was always something I was interested in doing. I didn't, I didn't think it would happen in 2013 when I joined here as a senior associate. 
So I think most of our listeners are familiar with Bessemer, you know, one of the world's oldest and most successful venture capital firms. Can you just discuss a little bit about its overall investing thesis and then its structure within? You obviously said mentorship is a huge part of the firm. I know a lot of firms tend to hire, you know, big partners externally. That's clearly not Bessemer's model. So can you just give our listeners an overview of the firm? So we just closed Bessemer 11, which is uh, $3.3 billion across our core and, and our growth vehicle. So the firm's grown a ton. And as you said, it's been around for a really long time. Really, the way we think about it is we're multi-stage in the truest sense of the word. And I'm one of 20 partners investing that capital. And each of us are really independent thinkers. We're allowed to spend time in roadmap areas, as we call them, that that we're passionate about, that we think are the right place to put our LP money over the next several years and, and the in each fund life cycle. There are some folks like me that focus on fintech that really go really, really deep on one pretty large area. And I'm the, the point person for all things. I like to say financial services because a lot of things are, are big F, little t. But so I'm the financial services lead. I have my partner, Steve Krause, who does healthcare. There's some folks that spend most of their time in and around cybersecurity, enterprise software. But there's a lot of um, great investors that change roadmaps pretty frequently. And even I, within financial services, will change the sub roadmap focus areas at any given time. And we can talk about some of my current areas of focus. So we think about it as each partner going deep in a few areas at any given time with total flexibility on stage and check size and a lot of discretion. And we try and not make group decision making as much as possible. It's much more independent, kind of running your own practice while you're here. And we have a pretty well-trodden, complex structure to make that work in terms of checks and balances and how we share capital budget and, and uh, how we come together for feedback on Mondays before decisions are made and all of that. But it's very much a thesis-driven, which everyone says, and you know, I thought was a little bit kind of lip service when I was recruited right. to the firm. But here, it's, they take, we take it really seriously to the point where you know, these are very extensive presentations that we get up and give each other you know, kind of before we do anything on the investment side or share any of those thoughts with the outside world, kind of constantly iterating these roadmaps. And that's, that's the way we're structured. Yeah. So a lot I want to follow up on, but first talking about your focus areas specifically, I know you said you have been focused on fintech infrastructure, B2B payments, mortgage, real estate innovation, and a few other, you know, major sub verticals of fintech. Can you talk about maybe just the two to three most important ones that you're spending your time on? and why you got interested in those spaces. Yeah, it's interesting because I think I'm going through a little bit of a point of reflection on is, is now the time to evolve some of this because some of these roadmap areas are really big uh, and we've been spending time on them for years now, even since when I was an associate and my mentor, Rob Stavis, was running our fintech practice. He's no longer uh, as active as an investor, but still uh, someone super heavily involved in, in managing a lot of the board seats from our, our legacy fintech investments. But the way the way I think about it is we were really looking for the fintech infrastructure, embedded fintech opportunity several years ago. You know, we had seen in our own portfolio, Toast, Service Titan, MindBody, Shopify. You know, it wasn't a secret to us that financial services was such a big piece of those business models. And not only in terms of the size of the opportunity, but the retention it drove for those businesses, the stickiness, 
and just how it, it kind of made those much sneakier, big TAMs than people ever thought. You know, we published a lot of our memos. One of our big questions, even when we invested in Shopify and and others, were are these big enough markets? And the fintech side of it is what largely made these big enough markets. Shopify, uh, a little bit of a different situation, but so we just had a lot of that in our portfolio. So when I first got here, and then we were also really strong on the developer platform side: Twilio, SendGrid, Auth0, which we just sold to Okta, Zapier. A lot of these great companies in our portfolio. I was thinking about how do we combine those themes and, and apply that to financial services. So Plaid and it was just coming up at the time and we tried to invest in the Series A, came pretty darn close. And then, you know, we're invest, I'm an investor in Alloy, which is really a, a developer platform for the financial services world to solve a lot of hard, messy problems that, that you could solve yourself, but it, it makes a lot more sense to work with a best-in-class solution. We're investors in Mambu on the core bank software side and Sino shift in the insurance technology space. Companies that allow the incumbents to fight back for developers to focus on what they're good at on the customer experience. So uh, the reason I say shifting is that's been an area of focus, but I think it's pretty well trodden now. Not sure how many of these opportunities are left out there. And uh, we're thinking about now that that infrastructure is in place, what are some, some other opportunities in the market? And I think there's a lot of opportunity on the B2B payment side still, not just facilitating the payments, but what you can do with that data, with that flow, and as that bleeds into everything else. So those have been two very core areas of focus. And you know, I could go on and on because you mentioned mortgage tech and real estate innovation, wealth management, insurance. These are like separate roadmaps that are like hour-long discussions. But if you want to dive in on any of them, happy to. Yeah, I do have one quick follow-up. So you said on Plaid, you almost got into the Series A. I think this one will end up belonging in Bessemer's anti-portfolio. Yep. So what happened in the Series A? Was it just too pricey at the time or you still had doubts about the business or something else? Yeah, it's a sensitive topic. You know, I still have nightmares. <laughs> and uh, you know, Zach and Will, the co-founders of the business, I'm still in contact with and have so much respect for that company. And everyone who works there, I have a lot of friends who work there still. What a great business. But no, I think at the time reflecting, I was I was pretty early in my in my time at Bessemer learning the ropes of, of venture capital. And uh, I think we were a little bit too cautious on the market size. You know, we looked at, by the way, winning a deal. There's a lot that goes into winning a deal. So we did right. submit a term sheet and not saying we we could have won it. Well, we were there and uh, had, had an opportunity, but the CEO and the, and the team have to pick you. So we just didn't win for many reasons. But I think we were overly skeptical on the market size back in 2014. We uh, Betterment, our portfolio company, was one of their largest customers at the time. We were seeing uh, all of the amazing trends that we had witnessed elsewhere. But you know, you looked at Yodely, which had just filed an S1 and was about to go public. And you know, that in some ways, it framed a little bit of a ceiling. It was very hard to, and I reflect on this often, put a little bit of a ceiling in my mind about what was possible there. And as a venture capitalist trying to generate returns for LPs, your entry price matters when you think there's a ceiling. So I think we were a little too cautious with our opening offer and it led to a lot of reflection in the subsequent weeks. And certainly now, uh, as the market has evolved, I think it's impacted my own. And I was not a partner at the time, so there were other decision makers involved. But when the opportunity to leave the, the Alloy Series A came up, that story was definitely in my bones. So, Absolutely. And so Alloy is a fantastic company. And, you know, on a great trajectory right now, just an awesome business. 
So I'm curious to learn a little bit about your decision-making frameworks. I mean, you came from you know the sell side, so you've really been in this general business for a long time. And you did work on the operating side, but then getting finally to the buy side and actually investing. Have you developed a kind of decision-making framework or process when you come across a new company? And maybe in the lens of Alloy, would you be able to apply it? Yeah. So I talked in the beginning about this roadmapping process we have as a firm. I think my roadmapping philosophy and how I put that into practice took a few years for me to get the hang of it. But Ally was super roadmap driven, right? I had presented the kind of infrastructure fintech roadmap in front of the partnership five or six years ago. You know, this was, it was a little bit more contrarian at the time when people were more focused on the consumer side of it. And there've been some great outcomes that we've missed on the consumer side. I've just tried to stay focused and just really track the company from day one. We, we, I met them when they were three people uh, and had no customers because we were trying to identify everything. We really did think it was going to take some time to get going for Alloy. And Tommy and Laura and, and Charles, the founders, will tell you, like I passed on them a few times and then had to convince them at the Series A that I wasn't going to do it again to spend time with us. But the framework was there. The business model was there. But to me, when you're building a fintech infrastructure company, they don't happen overnight. It's almost like the essence of it is you're taking something that's really messy and hard to do and obfuscating it so your customer doesn't have to do it. That's kind of a hard thing to do in six months. It takes a couple of years to build that. And I think about the Marquetta story, company privacy that's now shifting to infrastructure for card issuing. And there's a trend here. And, and Plaid was not an overnight success. They, they, were, they were at it for a few years before the hockey stick happened. So we had noticed that from our roadmapping work and then just stayed really close to our portfolio companies that were using Alloy to really talk to them about the value. And once one of my portfolio companies actually bred, which we sold recently to Alliance Data, they were skeptical and were not a customer at first, but then they started to use them later. That was a watershed moment for me. And they were really helpful in reducing our fraud and saying yes to more of the right customers. So mm-hmm. we just had a lot of different touch points and then leaned in uh, on the Series A and having known the company for four years already. That was the story there. And it's gone quite well uh, over the last two years since the Series A and kind of a rare company where you're selling down market to, to fintechs that are just getting started, mid market to banks I've never heard of you know, that show up on our board reports. <laughs> And then upmarket to really large banks that can use it too. So rare that companies can sell to multiple markets with a single product. And that's, that's what I think makes it really special. Yeah. And then when you are looking at new companies, are there any really just top deal makers or deal breakers that you think about? Like just something that really sounds the alarm on something that you have to get into or absolutely have to avoid? That's a really good question. I, I think on the, on the B2B side, if there's pull in the market, it's really rare in financial services to not have to sell your product. So something that's Absolutely. something we saw at, at Alloy and at Mambu, you know, our company in, in Germany that my partner Brian Feinstein led that deal, but I, but I helped uh, work with them on it. You know, when you see this pull from the market where it's, it's not just product market fit, but the product's kind of selling itself. And that's when you see the opportunity to pour venture capital into the go-to-market effort. That's really what we're looking for often. These days, a lot of people are, are putting the cart before the horse and financing these businesses way before that signal is there. So it's become a lot harder to do that. And we have to have more conviction in our roadmapping work and in a team because you're just, you don't get to wait anymore. And that's been a real shift in the fintech B2B market over the last 12 months. 
Yeah. And another big shift over the last few years, at least I've been thinking about, is the utter saturation in the wealth management and investing space. I'm curious to see how you're thinking about this space over the next few years with what just seems like such a commoditized products with startups, you know, relatively mature companies, unicorns, and of course, incumbents all tackling it, and really very few exits. And of course, you have two horses in the race with both Betterment and United Capital. Yeah. Well, we did sell United Capital to Goldman Sachs. Rob led the deal, but I was on the board for six years before that acquisition. So I learned a lot about the wealth management space. I think you got to segment it, right? Mm -hmm. There's direct retail investing. We could have a whole podcast about (laughs) about that if we want to debate uh, payment (laughs) for order flow and the philosophy of whether or not retail investors should be trading options frequently as, as some of these platforms or allow them like that's a separate conversation. If you're interested in learning the intricacies and good and bad of payment for order flow, check out the second half of our episode with the founder of Adam Finance released just a few weeks ago. We also did a great episode with the COO of Robinhood, which you should definitely check out. That's a separate conversation. Then there's kind of the folks going after the mass affluent world and and trying to replace the 120 basis points you used to have to pay for advice that wasn't customized at all and and selling you product. That's what John Stein and the Betterman team set out to do when we invested 10 years ago. And I'd say, you know, that market, they were an innovator there. You know, a lot of people forget that, you know, it it is crowded now with different angles. And there's been a lot of facilitation on the infrastructure side with the drive wells of the world and others to allow that functionality proliferate. But what I think is really interesting in wealth management is people do need advice. I think once your life reaches a certain level of complexity, aside from whatever you want to do in terms of gambling in the equity markets, I used to be on an equity capital markets desk and I don't trade personally because I know what I don't know. Not at all. No active investments. Yeah, I don't don't actively trade. A hundred percent index. Well, there's a lot of Bessemer, and uh, a lot of Bessemer and investing, and other than companies. of course Bessemer yeah. co-investing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I feel like I have enough volatility with the with the <laughs> entrepreneurs that I'm riding shotgun with and, and sitting true. every day. So try and set it and forget it is my philosophy. But in the middle there, then there is a need for financial advice. And right, United Capital was a traditional RIA roll up with technology that they were using better than their competitors. You know, it was a consistent brand experience, a consistent client experience using a great Salesforce implementation. And that was actually really differentiated in the market. We sold that for a really premium multiple to Goldman Sachs as a result. Mm-hmm. And then Betterment comes at it from another side of low fees, passive, the philosophy of behavioral economics of set it and forget it and, and you know, really don't be emotional, don't time the market. Both of those are interesting. I think there's something in the middle that technology is going to bring to the wealth management world. And there's some interesting companies right now that are attacking this. And also uh, wealth managers don't really know how to grow their practice without going to the golf course or or acquiring businesses. So I think that digital problem, that smart asset, and my classmate at Wharton, uh, Andres Garcia at Zoe Financial is uh, working on, there's a lot of interesting companies that are solving problems for the traditional wealth management world, which I don't think is going to go away. I think people will always want financial advice once their life reaches a certain level of complexity. So I think while that pure robo product has commoditized to a certain extent, there's a lot more around financial advice that is complex and big market opportunities still. And I spent a lot of time there because mm-hmm. we've learned a lot the last 10 years and hoping to apply some of that to the next wave of entrepreneurship in the area. 
Yeah. And one follow-up, what is Zoe Finance? I'm not familiar with this company. Yeah. Zoe is basically a product. Andres is going to love my plug here. Yeah. So, free plug. Uh, great. Yeah. It's, it's, a great, it's a great company. He was a classmate of mine at Orton and he used to be a wealth manager, uh, wealth advisor himself. And he really understands how difficult it is for folks to grow their practice. So they're really helping connect the dots between people searching on the internet for someone looking for an advisor and they have a stable of highly vetted advisors and they make matches and their business model is, is kind of easily understood getting paid for making those matches. Got it. So Charles, I can't really host this episode without talking about the just crazy fundraising environment that we've been in the last year or two. It has just been every week, I think on my timeline is a new VC raising or a growth equity firm raising a massive fund, as well as companies just commanding extreme valuations and raising up rounds every three months. So as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Bessemer raised two funds totaling $3.3 billion, which is a pretty significant chunk of change for any, any firm. So can you talk about what this fundraising process was like over the last you know, year or so, especially during COVID and what your investors were looking for and what you were telling your investors? We're very fortunate, just given our history, right? My partners who are more experienced than I am and the partners who came before us at Bessemer have a great track record. So there's a lot of faith in the platform, but it has evolved a lot and we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. When we raise capital from our LPs, we share those roadmaps with them. So they're hearing what I'm focused on in financial services, what my partner's focused on in healthcare, what others are focused on on the consumer side and every area that we cover. There's very few areas that someone's not thinking about here. And they get the full picture of our model um, and spend a lot of time with each of us before making decisions. And we're you know, in the fortunate position of being able to uh, select um, the types of people we want to work with and the causes we want to try and generate returns for. And I'm just really grateful to be at a platform that allows us to do that. But I hear you on the, the incredible sums that are being raised by us and others. I mean, the hard part is consistently generating these returns. And that's what we're constantly right. thinking about. How do we do that? Stay ahead of the curve and try and invest in areas that are a little bit less well-trodden and really react our roadmap thinking at, at all times. But you know, it's great. It's a great time to be building companies. Uh, that's right. for sure. So, you know, I think as someone personally, I focus a lot on early stage investing. So I just want to make sure we're able to support our companies all the way through and not overreact and use the size of our fund to, to kind of double down at the right moment. That's, that's very much our philosophy, but it's tough. It's daunting. Uh, and, you know, the one thing I keep reflecting on with all this money sloshing around the financial system is, you know, it still doesn't make it easier to hire great people and shorten a sales cycle. So we just have to stay intellectually honest when we make these investments and decisions that there are certain things that money doesn't change. When a company puts a plan in front of me saying they're going to go from 50 to 150 full-time employees in a year, mm -hmm. that's the hardest thing to believe. It's not the financials. So, Yeah. And on that note, so hiring, again, like you mentioned, it seems that every fintech company that I see is also hiring, trying to grow hundreds and hundreds each year. And sometimes I think, God, I know it's a hot space, but how many qualified engineers, biz dev people, compliance folks, et cetera, are there out there? So going to Bessemer, though, you're now in a senior position where you're certainly making a lot of hiring decisions for Bessemer, as well as probably advising your portfolio companies. 
What are some things that you look for when hiring? And do you have any frameworks as well that you apply to hiring like you have with your companies? Yeah, I think it's a balance between relevant experience and culture fit and just intellectual capability and the ability to learn, right? So you can't these days build out a team, especially as a younger company, of the ideal person in every role. You have to be thinking about building a diverse executive team and individual contributor teams underneath them. That's more important even than, than kind of employee market fit. So it's balancing it all right now. I mean, I think uh, half of my calendar this week is interviewing VP level folks at seven different portfolio companies of mine. It's a huge part of what an investor does is, is helping pattern recognize and try and pick the right people and really communicate constantly on, on what else we're seeing in the market. So it's the hardest part of this job. Um, and then if you get it wrong, you have to react quickly. You have to think about the consequences and it's daunting to go through another hiring process. So I talk about like team building and, and before we invest, you look at the team that's already in place and you think about how much work you're going to be doing over the next couple of years to help them round out the team, change over the team for the next stage. Because some teams are more set up for that next stage and some are less so. There's no playbook there, I think. Um, but in financial services, if, if you're looking for a chief risk officer, a chief compliance officer, you know, there's less flexibility. But I think if you're looking for a VP of marketing for a great B2B SaaS company in the fintech space these days, you might want to think outside the box, you know, someone who doesn't have fintech experience, but has sold to a similar customer type and similar annual contract value and, and sales cycle. So, you know, you got to think about those things. And that allows you to, to bring some diversity into the team, too. Yeah. And then last question. So when making new hires, of course, something that they tend to do is make a lot of mistakes as they grow. I definitely did in my first job out of college. What were some key mistakes that maybe you made your first one or two years as an investor or some common mistakes that you see a lot of VCs make in their first years in the industry? It's a great question. You know, reflecting on there were mistakes in the deals I didn't invest in, right? So we talked about one of those examples. Yeah. But the, the companies that didn't work well, I often think about what we could have done differently in the, in the process leading up to the investment decision. And a lot of companies just don't work out. So you can't, you're never going to avoid that. If, if you're avoiding that in venture capital, you're also not taking enough risk. So sometimes it's, it's the dynamic that I had with the team during the lead up to the deal. And now there's, I think, a certain level of transparency and intellectual honesty I want in both directions. And I don't want to pretend to know things about their business that I don't know. And I don't want them to pretend like everything's perfect in the process of pitching the business and us doing our diligence. And I think look, looking back at the first couple of years, there were just things I didn't look out for. And it just took a lot of reps to get there, whether it was maybe not wanting to introduce you to certain customers or being a little bit strange about references, you know, or, or what you might learn in a dozen reference calls you're doing. So there are times that that's happened in the last few years where I've walked away from situations that I got into seven, eight years ago when I first started. And that's fairly nuanced, but this is just about reps. You know, it does, yeah. you know, some of our best investors have done, have done nothing but invest their whole careers. They weren't operators at all. They didn't, really, they didn't go to business school. And, and I just think they had a tremendous acumen for it and a lot of reps. There's a lot of different paths to being a good investor is how I think about it. 
And then in closing, Charles, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. Okay. We've got about 10 questions for you. Yeah, I don't think I gave you a heads up on this part. No, no. Wanted to keep it a little bit candid. So we got about 10 questions, max 10 second reply if you're ready. Okay. All right. First one, FinTech Hero. Oh, man. How about you can't pick one of your portfolio companies so nobody thinks you're playing favorites? Yeah, probably. Let's say Zach Parrott from Plaid, just uh, because the story (laughs) we already told. Oh, that's great. How about Investing Hero? You know, one of my partners, Jeremy Levine, has a pretty incredible track record and one of my mentors here in the New York office and really try and emulate the way he's, he's built his portfolio and his reputation. How about maybe one or two classmates of yours from your time at Warren that you really admire and where they are now? Oh, great question. Yeah, two of my classmates I'm really close to that should both be interviewed on this podcast if they haven't already. One, my friend Justin Overdorf, he was a, an executive at Stripe for a long time and a close confidant of mine when I, when I diligence opportunities and uh, was, was at Yelp before that. So we were in BD roles at Yelp and Foursquare at the same time and someone I have a lot in common with. And then Io Amojula, uh, another one of my close friends from Wharton, who really was one of the key architects of Square's Cash App and uh, doesn't always get the credit for it, but he was really one of the lead product managers and built it from scratch uh, with a small team initially, became a very big business and team. (laughs) And he now actually shifted to the healthcare space, but still a super active angel investor in fintech. And those are two, two close friends of mine. Great. Okay. Next one. Sticking with Wharton, what is your fondest Wharton memory? Uh, fondest Wharton memory? Uh, hockey. Uh, I love playing oh. hockey with, with my friends at Wharton and going to Bonners after and just you know falling asleep at 4 a.m. and having to get, get up and do it all over again. I, I played ice hockey as a small kid and then didn't play again until I got to Wharton. And those are my fondest memories. Playing with people who had never skated before. It was awesome. Right. I completely agree. So for our listeners who don't know, there is this just kind of beer league at Wharton. It's a co-ed hockey league. Nobody can skate. It's kind of a total joke. It's more of a drinking club with hockey attached. There's 10 teams now. It's a blast. I'm in the league as well. And yeah, there was a guy from India on my learning team who had never seen ice until he got to the tryouts, which should give you an idea for the level of skill. So it's a great time. Um, And Bonners is still around, thankfully. They have the pandemic. Good to Um, hear Unrealistic dream job. Oh, unrealistic dream job is being a great founder. You know, I think uh, I think I ended up in the right role. You know, when you're first starting as an investor, you I think you're very envious of founders, and you're like, wow, I'm paying these high prices. I'm doing it. They they, they at exit, they get paid a ton, and then you just develop so much respect for them. It's all day. It's every day. You have so many people relying on you. I think it's probably the most rewarding thing, but. I just love being able to work with many of them at once. You know, my WhatsApp and my iMessage is just blowing up all day with my interactions with the CEOs I work with. And that's what I love. And then trying to give them the support. It's almost like coaching. That's how I feel like the role yeah. is. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a buyer of the founders, but I think I ended up in the right role. <laughs> and then next question, what is your work from home setup or stack? Well, you're looking at it. This is a, a the tiny guest bedroom, and I have my laptop. I have a Logitech HD camera and the light, and it's all very small. I live in a small apartment in Brooklyn, and it's it's quiet here until my two boys come home at around three thirty, four o'clock every day, and then I try. <laughs> all hell breaks loose. 
All right. So that leads me to my next question. Obviously influenced by the two kids, but what is your morning routine? Uh, the morning routine. Two little boys, six and three and a half. So it's just all in with them. Whenever they decide to wake up and school drop off, loving the fact that, that there's no travel right now because being around a lot has been amazing. Uh, and I'm a, a pretty religious runner. So I run every morning, even if it's 10 degrees outside. So Got it. Okay. And then last question. We had talked before the episode, you're a big New York sports fan, unfortunately on the other side of New York sports than me for most teams. Who is your childhood sports hero? Oh, Jeter. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? I mean, and Messier. Messier. Okay. That, that's a more interesting one. I yeah. Love. I mean, Mark Messier. The 93-94 Rangers are, are everything to me. Yeah. But, unfortunately, but- before my time. Well, Charles, it was great to have you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm very excited to get this out to all of our listeners. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.